my name is Kirsten, and I am the ministry coordinator here at the house. And if yay, um, if you happen to have counted down or up the commandments, you'll realize that um, I'm speaking on do not commit adultery tonight. Um, even though David hates titling things, I decided to title this talk as "You're a Hot Mess Too." Just admit it. Um, the first time I ever really heard this word hot mess was when I was telling somebody in the office about my like couple days where I had gone to the grocery store um, to buy milk and I always get like the skim milk with like the pink label on it. Uh, so I got, I got the pink label and the next day I went to pour my milk and my cereal and it was really thick. I was like, why, why is it thick? Oh, I got a whole half gallon of buttermilk. Um, gross. But if you know me, I had to use the whole entire half gallon because I spent money on it, so I might as well use the whole thing. But most recipes only cause, call for like a tablespoon of buttermilk, so my friends kind of had a lot of fun making fun of that. Um, and then that night, I decided it would be a great idea to spill a glass of crystal light red on my brand new carpet. So I tried to be all homemaker-y and look up how to get it out. And it said, use dishwasher soap to get it out. So I used some dishwasher detergent and thought it was just great. And the next morning, there's a big, bright, or I don't know, pink bleach stain on my carpet. Um, so basically, I was told I was a hot mess. So we looked up the definition, and the one that I was was somebody was saying, where you are such a mess that it makes other people's guts bust. I was like, great. Um, so I continued to look it up because I was thinking about it the other day, and I was like, hmm, it kind of fits with adultery. Um, a lot of the definition of it is when somebody's looking real good on the outside, but they're a mess on the inside, or when things around them are when they're just kind of going and spiraling down and down and down. Um, so our title of the talk tonight is You're a Hot Mess Too, Just Admit It. So um, before we get into that, pray with me. Jesus, um... Thanks for, thanks for being here. Um, thanks for guiding me through this. Um, Holy Spirit, speak. Holy Spirit, be here um, through me, Lord. Um, thanks in your name. Amen. Okay, I'm sure the majority of you have some sort of basic definition of what adultery is. Um, not cheating on a husband or wife. Um, but... I'm assuming the majority of us in here are not married, and therefore I'd be going a totally different route if that was the only definition for adultery. The people, when they heard it in Exodus, also were not having sex outside of marriage, and so adultery to them was any sort of sexual relations outside of marriage. Um, tonight we're going to be going a little bit, a lot deeper than that. We're going to be looking at Jesus' words of what he says adultery is. But if you do happen to be interested in talking about sex and what that looks like in and out of marriage, tomorrow night, you might have gotten a flyer, but we're doing a seminar at The Hub, 650 Macaulay, on what is sex, what biblical definition of it. So go ahead and check that out if you're interested at 6 o'clock tomorrow. Um, but we can take a look at what Jesus says adultery is by taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount. 
We were there last week when we talked about do not murder and how Jesus is actually getting at the heart of the issue and says if you murder, if you are angry with somebody, then you are committing murder. So we're going to go right after that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, if you want to put that up there. He says, you've heard that it was said by the people long ago, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if any of you have looked at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for one part of your body to go to hell than for your whole body to go to hell. All right, so what's lust? Dictionary definition of it is a physical chemistry for somebody else's sexual desire for somebody, which those are great things to have a physical chemistry that leads into a marriage or that desire that leads to a marriage. But the actual Greek word that Jesus was using for lust really meant to feel upon or to sexually desire somebody that was not yours. So to feel, to be turned on by, to feel something from that, to desire, to have a desire, is the definition of lust he's using. And we all, girls and guys, um, lust in different ways for sure. Girls often, and I heard this phrase from Kelsey, I think four years ago, when Kelsey Burke, when they were talking about the Song of Solomon, And us as girls often lust after a desire to be desired. We lust after the feeling of being lusted for. That's why we'll flirt or send messages or give eyes to guys that all we really want from them is to be desired by them. Um, I've heard that guys most often lust after the feeling they get when they lust. So when they objectify a woman by staring at their butt or when they look at pornography, this feeling of power and control that they get after looking at that girl. And obviously there's more than that and girls and guys can switch, but those are a couple definitions, different, different ways that we do lust. Okay, so why would Jesus say cut off your arm if you lust? Or why would it even be one of these Ten Commandments if this was the case? We have to actually understand why lust, why what we do hurts other people to be able to answer that question. So ladies, first us. When you flirt with a guy, when you lead him on simply to have him tell you that you're beautiful, simply to know that somebody out there likes you, loves you, affirms you, what we're doing to him is stripping him of any security he has because we're telling him he's not enough. That all we want from him is this one part that tells us that we're great. That he no longer is in any sort of control, has any power, so no wonder it's easy for him to step into that. And honestly, the way we dress, guys, first of all, girls don't usually dress for you. hate to break it to you. We dress for each other. Um, It's very true. But we do control what we wear, and we can be careful of that because we know what turns a guy on. We know what makes him look at us. Guys, 
I can speak to this a lot clearer because I'm on the other end. But when you objectify a girl, when you look at pornography, what we take from that is that all we are good for is sex. That we're worthless besides that. That's why girls who are being trafficked actually believe that they are not good for anything else besides having sex with somebody. When you stare at a girl, when you look at her long enough, the feeling that we get is we want to punch you in the face and we want to throw up all at the same time. I'm not joking. Um, I was talking to my core group about our fears, and one of the girls was saying that what she is daily fearful of is being raped because of the way she is looked at. And it made me start thinking and start asking other people if that was true. And the majority of girls I talked to said yes. That they are fearful every day of being raped because of the way they see guys look at them. That is scary. And then, even if you're in a relationship with somebody, the moment it hits lust, you know it and you feel worthless. So if you're kissing innocently, you know right when it turns from affection into lust and you no longer feel like enough, you feel devalued. But then this cycle spins and we begin to hurt each other and fall into lust again because as soon as you start kissing, this guy starts lusting after you, you desire to be desired by him and so you go farther and farther and farther and continue to hurt each other. Jesus has very strong words to say to us as we are causing each other to sin. In Matthew 18, he says, It is better for you to put a millstone around your neck and drown in the depths of the sea than it is for you to cause one of my little ones, one of my children, to stumble or sin. It is better for us to drown than it is for us to continue to hurt each other, to cause each other to sin through lust. So what do we do? Well, Jesus says we cut off our arm and gouge out our eye. So, I mean, I guess that's it, and I'll, I can go. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't want to go too far. Um, he's not actually telling us to like mutilate, self-mutilate our body, but he is saying that if there is something that is causing us to destroy each other, that it is better that we get rid of that. It's no wonder that all throughout the New Testament, when they have lists of people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, on there is adultery. Because God is about repairing things. I got a text from a friend the other day, and all it said was, God really likes to repair ruins, doesn't he? Because he does. So as we destroy people, as we destroy each other, of course we're not part of inheriting his kingdom. One of the main ways we do this destruction is we take things that are supposed to be one. So a marriage. People are married, they become one flesh. And we take that apart and we tear that apart because they're no longer one. When we lust after someone, when we objectify them and grab stuff for our own ourselves, we're taking that one person and tearing them apart. So really, we can say that adultery is taking something that is one and tearing it apart for our own gratification and devaluing the rest of the person. 
Adultery is tearing apart something that is one for our own self-gratification and devaluing the rest of the person. But honestly, we're not actually going to be able to be faithful to other people, to see them as one, until we realize that we are actually unfaithful, that we are actually adulterous people to God. The Old Testament so often calls Israelites these adulterous people. Because what we've done is we too have ripped ourselves from the oneness we are in Christ and separated that. Will you put up 1 Corinthians up on the screen for me? By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said that two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Um, I really like the message version of this passage as well. It's about to be up there next. It says, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex as much, is as much of a spiritual mystery as it is a physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment, intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. Thanks. We tear ourselves apart from this oneness we have in Christ. And we also tear apart an image that God has given us of marriage. I've heard so many people talk about how they're fearful of getting married because they don't know what it looks like to be loved by a husband or loved by a wife because they don't see that in their family. But God is the one that has told us that he wants to be that image. But even us as kingdom people are tearing that image apart. Paul tells us in Corinthians that he wants to present to us one husband, Christ, and present to him ourselves a pure virgin, but that he is scared that just like Eve, the serpent will deceive us and we will no longer have a pure devotion for Christ. And that's what's happened to us. So for us to actually understand and admit that we are a hot mess, I think we need to dive into this passage in Ezekiel that, like a lot of stories in scripture, is a parallel, a, a um, parable, parallel, um, a parable of a story of a girl that actually is communicating to us a bigger picture about ourselves. So as I read this, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of this girl and see God in this story as God with you. I was also more convinced that this was a story for us as I began to read about the people that Ezekiel was speaking to in this passage. Um, he was talking to these people that inhabited Jerusalem. And they said he, he was a really smart, smart culture, all that, just like us, pretty smart. 
but that they didn't like to admit their sin, and that even when they did admit their sin, they were great at justifying it. And that's us. We are great at justifying our sin. But I loved him, so it's okay that I slept with him. But I'm going to have a family someday to provide for them, so it's okay that I hoard my money. But he made me so mad, so it's fine that I'm bitter towards him. This story is speaking to us, so put your feet, your, yourself in the feet of this girl that he's talking to. You can think. And then I came by. I saw you all miserable and bloody. Yes, I said to you, lying there helpless and filthy, live. Grow up like a plant in the field. And you did. You grew up. You grew tall and matured as a woman, full-breasted with flowing hair. But you were naked and vulnerable, fragile and exposed. I came by again and saw you, saw that you were ready for love and a lover. I took care of you, dressed you, and protected you. I promised you my love and entered the covenant of marriage with you. I, God, the master, gave my word. You became mine. I gave you a bath, washing off all that blood, and anointed you with aromic oils. I dressed you in a colorful gown and put leather sandals on your feet. I gave you linen blouses and a fashionable wardrobe of expensive clothing. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your wrist. Fitted you out with a necklace, emerald rings, sapphire earrings, and a diamond tiara. You were provided with everything precious and beautiful, with exquisite clothing and elegant food, garnished with honey and oil. You were absolutely stunning. You were a queen. You became world famous, a legendary beauty brought to perfection by my ornaments, decree of God the master. He took you. He washed you. He cleaned you as you were dirty, and he made you beautiful. He gave you power. He gave you gifts. He gave you a purpose. He looked at you and said, live. All semester, we've tried to communicate that every one of these commandments was given out of a relationship that God had with us. It was given out of love. And I think this story makes that even so much more obvious that he is telling us this out of a love for us. You can go to the next slide. But your beauty went to your head. And you became a common whore, grabbing anyone that came down the street and taking him into your bed. You took your fine dresses and made tents of them, using them as brothels in which you practiced your trade. This kind of thing should never happen, never. And then you took all your fine jewelry that I gave you, my gold and my silver, and made pornographic images of them for your brothels. You decorated your bed with fashionable silks and cottons and perfumed them with my aromic oils and incense. And then you set out the wonderful foods I provided, the fresh breads and fruits with fine herbs and spices, which were my gift to you. And you served them as delicacies in your whorehouses. That's what happened, says God the Master. The first thing she did 
when she turned from him was to use these gifts that he had given her to commit adultery towards him, to turn from him, to say, I'm not going to be one with you, but I'm going to use these gifts for my own advantage. Just like us. We are told in that passage in Corinthians that we are one with the Holy Spirit. He is dwelling within us. He is our, we're his temple. And so when we go and mess around with other people, we are committing adultery. We are using this thing that was one with him for something else. This gift he had given us. And we do this with our personal gifts. Think of something you're good at. You're not allowed to think that I'm not good at anything because I'm not just talking about like a sport or a craft. Like, think about something that you're good at. Maybe making people smile. Maybe it's organizing. Okay, how do you use that for the kingdom? And how do you use that for your own selfish worth? I do that with a lot of things, unfortunately. Um, one of my strengths is developing things in people. I like to see a potential for somebody and encourage them into that potential to develop them, which is great when my job is to disciple people. But I'm also very good at using it for my own um, selfishness. I can easily make people feel really bad about themselves because they did not live into this potential I saw for them. And I can create people that might be codependent upon me because I'm the one that is just giving them this affirmation and the only one that sees this in them when that is not true at all. So we use our gifts, these things God's given us, to commit adultery towards him. Daniel, will you put up the next slide for me? And then... You went international with your whoring. You fornicated with the Egyptians, seeking them out in their sex orgies. Then, the more promiscuous you became, the angrier I got. Finally, I intervened, reduced your borders, and turned you over to the rapidity of your enemies. Even the Philistine women, can you believe it, were shocked at your sluttish life. You went on to fornicate with the Assyrians, your appetite was insustainable, and you still weren't satisfied. You took on the Babylonians, a country of businessmen, and you still weren't satisfied. Here's where we get to the root of her issue. She was trying to find satisfaction in something else besides Christ, something else besides the thing that she was supposed to feel that from. And if you've been around church long enough, you've probably heard that a lot, that we're seeking other things to be satisfied, but it's true. And when she began to find satisfaction in somebody on the street corner, she felt that for a moment, but it wasn't enough. So she went international with it, and she got into deeper and deeper stuff to try to find that same sort of high or whatever it was from other people, but didn't get it kind of idea of like the gateway drug or I've heard pornography is like this when you look at soft porn and you get that turn on but then it's not enough and so you go deeper and deeper and to harder and harder stuff and no wonder child pornography is a huge deal right now because it is this deep sin that we have spiraled into because we're longing to find satisfaction in something 
that is not going to do that. Why do we do this? Why do we try to find our satisfaction in something that we know isn't going to give it to us? One reason is it's quick and easy. It's kind of the idea of this pastor that I love. His name's Greg Boyd. He calls it first-order pleasures versus second-order pleasures. That we're supposed to be striving for these second-order pleasures, these plans that God has for us, but we're choosing the first-order ones. My first image I had was oftentimes I get hungry on my way home or whatever, and so I'm just going to grab a granola bar. So it's like me grabbing a granola bar as opposed to having, going home to like a five-course meal waiting for me. It's us saying, well, I, don't, I, I just feel like I want to have sex right now, so I'm not going to wait for marriage. Or I really just want to spend all my money right now as opposed to tithe it, so I'm just going to do that right now. We do the things that are fast and easy as opposed to waiting for these things that are our second-order pleasures. A guy named Andy Stanley, we went to a conference this couple weeks ago, and he used the same idea, but in terms of the story of Jacob and Esau, where he said that Esau sacrificed his inheritance, his future, for a bowl of stew because he could have it right then. We're going to go to the next slide. I'll gather all of your lovers around you and turn you over to them. They'll tear down your bold brothels and sex shrines. They'll rip off your clothes, take your jewels, and leave you naked and exposed. Then they'll call for a mass meeting. The mob will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They'll burn down your houses, a massive judgment with all the women watching. Isn't it true that the people and the things that we try to find our satisfaction in are the ones that end up ruining us, destroying us? If you are putting, trying to find satisfaction in your money, in your job, what is it that crushes you the most? When your job fires you, when they don't give you that promotion you wanted? Or in a relationship? Who is it that destroys you, that breaks you when you've tried to find the satisfaction for you being, being beautiful, for being good enough in them? It's that guy or girl in the relationship that ends up breaking you, breaking your heart when they can't satisfy those things. And it's no wonder that we as adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God because we are being destroyed and we are destroying others. My Bible defines um, the kingdom of God as the Lord's full rule and reign over our lives, our ability to be used for miracles and to restore this new kingdom and new, new heavens and new earth to be part of restoring this land right here, right now. So if we, in fact, are destroyers, we're not going to be able to inherit this kingdom and part of that is us using these gifts that God has given us, our purpose in this kingdom. And so we have to make a choice. Do we want to choose to have this purpose to live this life God has created us to live? Or are we going to choose these other satisfactions that are just going to turn against us instead? And I know for me, I want to choose 
this kingdom. But it's not necessarily always easy. And that's why he said you're going to have to cut off these sources of power. The right side of the body is, was always used as a source of power. So he's saying those things that are precious to you and powerful are things you might have to cut off. And the way we do this is through discipline. Paul speaks to this. He said he has had to discipline his body into subjection. That maybe it's cutting off certain internet websites, which really means that you are admitting that you do not have the power to do this on your own. And that's something probably precious to you. Or it's getting rid of a Facebook page or a defriending somebody, even though that is precious to you as well, but you know it's not going to be good. Discipline could even be admitting that you are at fault and taking responsibility for things. I've had to put a lot of discipline in my life because this stuff is pretty hard for me. This weekend, I went to Tallahassee, Florida, to rehearse with a guy that I'm dancing with um, in December. And the rehearsal was fine and all, but I went to this class, um, ballet class, and there's a bunch of high school girls and a couple college girls, and they were incredible. And I was not. And I left that weekend just feeling depressed and that I was not good at anything. I was not good enough at all. But instead of turning to the Lord and saying, okay, satisfy this issue that I have this need for being enough, I turned to food, stuffed myself till I was sick to try to make myself feel like I was enough. I turned to trying to find affirmation from other people and it didn't work. And the crazy thing is, I compare my weekend to actually just Monday where I had been practicing the discipline of fasting that day. And I went to a rehearsal and was told by my partner that I was not strong enough, that I was not a good enough dancer, and that my stomach was too big. And as a girl who has struggled with the eating disorder in her past, it's not really the easiest thing to hear. And if any of you were at the office on Monday, you probably saw me in and out of tears, and I was upset. I was sad. But I was finding my satisfaction in Christ in some weird way. That even though I was hurting, I still did not run to other things to find myself to be enough, but I was able to look towards him and realize he was going to satisfy that. Throughout this whole preparation of sermon stuff, I think I've realized that, yes, I don't always believe that I'm enough, but I think it's because I don't ever let God be enough to tell me that I am enough. To be honest, it's kind of hard to be a 26-year-old single girl living in the South whose little brother is about to get married in a couple weeks because I struggle with feeling like I'm good enough a lot. And what I'll do to feel that I am is to not let go of previous relationships, to stay with them for too long, or to send texts or messages or try to see them so that they can tell me that I'm still desired. And I've had to make a huge discipline in my life to not do that, to tell my friends whenever I do so they can kick my butt and tell me that I'm being dumb 
to get rid of my mini feed on my Facebook so I'm not looking at them or trying any of, trying to communicate or whatever. Because what I have done is I've tried to find satisfaction, I've tried to fill myself with these other people as opposed to letting myself be in a place where I really can say, okay, God, you say that you are enough to show me that I am, so let's do it. I'm a mess. But the good thing is that the story isn't over. That Ezekiel 16 actually continues on a little farther. I'll have put a full stop to your whoring life. No more paying lovers to come to your bed. By then my anger will be played out. My jealousy will subside. God the master says, I'll do to you just as you have already done. You who have treated my oath with contempt and broken the covenant. All the same, I'll remember the covenant I made with you when you were young. And I'll make a new covenant with you that will last forever. I'll firmly establish my covenant with you, and you'll know that I am God. You'll remember your past life and face the shame of it. But when I make atonement for you, make everything right after all you've done, it will leave you speechless. Not only is he saying that he has renewed this covenant with us, that he has forgiven us, that he still loves us, but he's saying that we will look at him and be speechless. That we will not have any, but, but I need this, or I want this, but we will be speechless because he will truly satisfy all of those things in us. And that he's also saying that when Jesus tells us to not lust, he's not saying good luck. He's saying it's possible. The Holy Spirit that dwells in you is the same spirit that gives you self-discipline. Is the same spirit of power that we can do it. And we can also look at Jesus when he comes across this adulterous woman and these Pharisees are trying to stone her. He calls them out and they end up leaving. And he looks at this woman who is about to be stoned to death and says, who condemns you? Does anyone condemn you? And she says, no, sir. And he looks at her and says, then neither do I condemn you. And he looks at you and says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. He tells us, he tells her to leave our life of sin. Biblical language uses the word purge or flee from this sin. Or in the Matthew chapter, to cut off these things that cause us to sin. But instead, to take captive every thought to be renewed by the transforming of our minds. So, if we can transform our eyes of lust into eyes of love, we can be these kingdom people as well. Second, our first Timothy says that we don't lust after our sisters because we care for them as their as a person. Their relationship goes beyond physical to a real person with longings disappointment, hope, and potential pain. We can learn to love people and see them as whole. We can do this by knowing what 1 Corinthians 13 says as a description of love and ask ourselves, 
is this being patient? Is this being kind? Is this being self-seeking? And retrain ourselves to look with love. And then we can take a look at David in the Psalms. Right after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, he turns to God and says, Give me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not the Holy Spirit from me, but renew in me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It is possible for us to not commit adultery. It is possible for us to not be this mess, but instead to step into our inheritance in the kingdom of God and to look at God and be speechless. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, um, thanks for dwelling here, dwelling with us. Thank you for forgiving us of our messiness, Lord. I pray that we know that and that we can learn to walk in your inheritance, Jesus. Thanks for communicating truth to us. We love you in your name.